Last year, Facebook quietly announced a deal to acquire a company. Customer, spelled with a K. It wasn't a big announcement. Customer with a K makes software that services customers with a C. It's not exactly Facebook's main business. And yet, months after announcing the deal, Facebook with an F is facing scrutiny from the FTC. Welcome to Life Under the Microscope, Facebook, where, as Eminem would say, the FTC won't let them be. And that means every deal, whether it's Instagram and WhatsApp, or some company that spells its name like Boris and Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle, is getting a closer look. And on this week's episode of the Informations 411, Corey, with a C, talks with Josh Sisko about this new stage of the antitrust scrutiny against Facebook, what it means for them in the next few years, and what other types of scrutiny it will be getting. Then in segment two, I talked with Kevin McLaughlin about the next wave of software IPOs. These are not household names, at least not in my household, probably in Kevin's. But there's a group of companies he and Nick Wingfield identified as the next crop about to take the dive into a red-hot public market. These are companies with names like HashiCorp, Databricks, UiPath, the Justice League of Enterprise Software as a service companies, I say. They've become key to how major companies, maybe ones you have heard of like Uber and Lyft, handle their data. It is a space to watch, as they say. But first, it's Corey and Josh. Some of the biggest threats to big tech companies like Facebook, Apple, and Google these days aren't necessarily what they face from some new young competitor. Now the threats are the lawyers and the federal investigators, newly emboldened to file lawsuits and take a look under the hood at how these companies are using their size to gain advantages. That's why I'm really glad to introduce my newest colleague, Josh Sisko, who has spent years covering tech's legal battles. Hey, Josh. Hey, Corey. Josh, we're going to talk about some of your most recent scoops and stories on this topic. But uh, first, you're you're new to the information. This is your first time on our FAIR podcast. How has this antitrust topic transformed over the years? What's really changed is that lawmakers, regulators, policy groups, lobbyists, the whole sort of gamut um, has just caught the attention of the companies and in a way that is impacting their just their business decisions, I think, to a much greater degree. Right. And this can be a dizzying world to keep up with. You have the Justice Department suing Google, the FTC suing Facebook. You have legislators like Senator Amy Klobuchar uh, introducing bills to beef up resources at those agencies. What to you is the most important thing to watch in the antitrust tech circle right now? In the near term, I think it's it's the lawmakers. It's it's Senator Klobuchar. It's uh, Congressman David Cicilline in Rhode Island, who is sort of Klobuchar's counterpart in the House. And it's and they're both Democrats. And I and it's not just Democrats. There's a real serious bipartisan sort of push to change the law to make it more to be more aggressive to expand the type of conduct that is illegal and to just put a more onerous burden on companies to sort of prove what they want to do is pro-competitive with benefits benefits consumers and, and the greater marketplace. But I think those new laws are coming and I think that is sort of the biggest focus because in terms of what regulators can do, they're more responding to conduct whereas the law, you know, Google and Facebook are facing, you know, 
mammoth antitrust cases, and those are going to drag on for years. Apple is under investigation. Amazon is under investigation. Other companies are most certainly under investigation. I just think that there's going to be a lot happening uh, on the enforcement front, too. Right. And you mentioned only recently that companies, particularly these tech firms, begin to realize how much this could take up a lot of their time and be a considerable threat. And there seems to have been a shift in thinking around why these companies should be under antitrust scrutiny. For a while, it seemed like the conventional wisdom was they aren't doing any real customer harm necessarily, you know, in a traditional sense that we would think of when we think about breaking up companies or antitrust. There wasn't, you know, sort of a a price squeeze being put on customers. Why has that thinking shifted and what's the new ideology? Well, I think there's just a, a heightened awareness at the power that these companies have in our lives just all the way through. I mean, and just when you look at how they determine, uh, you know, the public discourse and how they are able to, the influence that they wield, and there's a small handful of companies that have such outsized influence. So I think that was kind of the impetus for this sort of wake-up call. And in terms of, you know, how the harm manifests, I think, yes, price has typically been what people look at, but when you have free services like Facebook or Google or or wildly cheap services like Amazon Prime, you have to look at, you have to expand that sort of perspective on, on how harm can manifest. And I think that there's this idea that, you know, harm could be reduced innovation in the state uh, attorney's general lawsuit against Facebook. There's this idea that Facebook is the dominant social media platform, and they're and since they don't face any meaningful competition, according to the lawsuit, they don't have to offer meaningful privacy protections. And if there was a more robust social media market, for example, companies would be competing to offer greater privacy protection. So you wrote in a story this week about a billion-dollar acquisition that Facebook made last November for a startup called Customer customer with a K. And this deal got a little bit of buzz when it went through, but it seems like it is it has Facebook again in in some of the FTC's crosshairs. What did you find? What why is the FTC taking a look at this deal? Well, I think the FTC and and the DOJ just antitrust regulators around the world are just have this like heightened awareness whenever especially in the tech industry, whenever a dominant company is making an acquisition, I think that there's just this, this heightened awareness of, you know, why is this company doing this? What are they trying to, how is this going to entrench their market power further? And not every deal certainly is problematic in any way. And I think the customer deal is a good example of the evolution of how regulators are thinking because I think just a, even maybe a couple of years ago, the deal probably wouldn't have really raised eyebrows at all. And now you have this, it's, they, they paid a billion dollars for this company, so clearly it's important to their business. 
but when you just like look like on its face, like it's sort of ancillary to what it's not a social media company. The fact that it is getting sort of this more uh, in-depth investigation, I just think speaks to the interest of regulators in really wanting to make sure that there are no problems with the deal. And just because it's getting this investigation, that is not any indication that it would, that the FTC is going to block the deal. They have to, in order to do that, they have to go to court. And so it's a lot easier to open an investigation than it is to actually try to block a deal. But I think it's just increased scrutiny. Right. Because before, these these types of acquisitions would sail through. For the most part, the FTC and states are suing Facebook to unwind the the nine-year-old purchase of Instagram, the seven-year-old purchase of WhatsApp. Those are deals that the FTC waved through years ago, and now they you know, they want to go and revisit it. And there's nothing that prevents them from doing that. But I think that it's, I think the FTC would have a difficult time just waving another major startup deal through when Facebook is involved, when they're also suing. Right. Now, with the specific deal for customer that Facebook made, you talked to some of customers' competitors. And, and customer, it should we should note, is in the customer service sort of software tool world. And Facebook has an interest in trying to essentially get companies that use Facebook to also use tools to like talk to their customers. What, what are customers' competitors uh, worried about? They are worried about Facebook being able to sort of muscle them out of the market. Facebook were to bundle customer with its broader advertising services and say offer customer for free to its advertising uh, clients, then that could potentially disadvantage customers' competitors. Facebook would say that there's no reason why they would do that because it would just leave a huge uh, part of the market to its own competitors, you know, where other companies that are interested in e-commerce and messaging. So they would say there's no reason for them to do that. But I think that there is just a fear around when any sort of dominant company like Facebook moves into a new market, how, you know, other market participants are sort of, I think it puts them on edge a little bit. All right, well, we'll look forward to more updates on on all this stuff. Thanks so much, Josh. Great, thank you. All right, Kevin, so the public markets at this moment have never looked more welcoming. And it's been a topic that we have been covering for some time here on the podcast last week. Zoe and I talked about the diverse types of companies that are led by female founders who could take the plunge and go public. But you and Nick Wingfield wrote about perhaps the most compelling business of the group, which is software companies. Uh, And these are solid businesses with recurring revenue. And a lot of them are not exactly household names, at least in, in my household. So Kevin, we'll go through the list of companies that you and Nick picked in a second. But are there any specific waves that you kind of noticed that these companies are all riding that has brought them to this point? Well, three of the companies in our story, Databricks, Confluent, and Samsara, uh, fit within the area of data analytics and software that companies, especially large companies, can use 
to get a handle on the data that they're generating every day in their operations and also funnel that back into the business uh, to in areas like to get greater insight and to kind of predict things that are going to happen in the future. Um, I think, you know, uh, of the three, I think Databricks is the one that most resembles last year's most successful software IPO and actually the most successful software IPO in history, which was Snowflake. Databricks is a little bit different, and I'm happy to explain how that how it's different. Yeah, well, let's actually talk a little bit about the time that we're in before we get to, to, to Databricks and Snowflake. Like, do you think COVID has played uh, a significant role in the pandemic and, and the lockdowns in the enterprise software world? Like, has their business been boosted by this period? Yes, one thing you hear over and over in earnings calls from companies like Microsoft, this uh, very annoying buzzword called digital transformation, which basically just means companies adopting software and cloud services to replace old school ways of doing business. And so, yes, absolutely. The pandemic seems to have been sort of fuel on the fire, so to speak. Yeah. So let's go through some of the companies here. Uh, Tell me a little bit about Confluent. Um, And one of the fascinating kind of tidbits that you guys had in in your explanation of them is that the founders of this company were former LinkedIn employees, and they used open source software there to process the trillions of messages that flow across the LinkedIn platform each day. Uh, Explain to me that connection there and why that's made such a good business for Confluent. Yeah, so Confluent is commercializing an open source project called Apache Kafka. It's going to be a really interesting public debut for them because they're the first company that is uh, one of the first companies that is focused on what's called streaming event analytics. And so Confluent is the one the best known company in this space. There are also uh, a number of other companies getting into it as well as uh Snowflake, for example, is said to be working on its own streaming analytics service. And there are also startups, as we mentioned, there's one called Vectorized, which is pretty interesting because they last year uh, released an open source project of their own called Red Panda, which is compatible with Kafka, but also uh, operates much more quickly and enables processing to happen more quickly. And so Confluent is definitely, I think, is going to do well, uh, I think, in an IPO. Uh, but they are facing some competition, and this space generally is poised for uh, a lot more, I think, activity in the coming years. Yeah. Uh, another one here that you mentioned, Databricks, has a lot of similarities to Snowflake, you know, hugely successful IPO. Uh, how is that benefiting Databricks? First of all, Databricks, uh, the one area where they're similar to Snowflake is that they both develop a kind of database that lets companies put all kinds of different data in there and then use it for various projects, whether it's uh, building machine learning models, which is a focus for Databricks, uh, or just getting uh, business insights, as I referenced before, from the data. Um, Databricks uh, has, it's an all-cloud model, and Databricks also has partnered with the major cloud providers as well. So they should be one of the biggest IPOs this year. Um, the businesses are a little different, though. So you know, it's not necessarily going to have the same trajectory, but, uh, but yeah, very interesting company. Yeah. And, and last thing here, what do you think is the, the path? I mean, some of these companies seem like they're further along the process in going public than others. Give me, give me your sense on, um, on you know, which ones we should expect to see going public versus the others. We also featured two older companies in our story, one called UiPath, which develops a kind of software known as robotic process automation, which is a really fancy way of saying that it automates repetitive business tasks. 
They were founded in 2005. Um, they're getting a lot of buzz and a lot of funding in recent years because this technology has come to the fore as a way for companies to solve business challenges more quickly. And then the other one is uh, HashiCorp, which is a cloud developer tooling company uh, founded in 2012. Um, they kind of stand apart from the rest of these companies because they're not data analytics, but they are uh, indicative of a trend where developers within companies are driving more purchasing decisions than ever before, ones that used to be made by CIOs traditionally. All right, well, there's a lot more in this story. I, uh, I suggest all of our uh, listeners go check it out because if you're interested in the space, this is a pretty good key to uh, where you should be watching. Um, all right, Kevin, thank you so much for joining. Okay, thanks, Tom. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Corey Weinberg, Josh Sisko, and Kevin McLaughlin for joining us. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you back here next week.